And welcome, everybody, to Ocean Currents. It's Monday, and um, we have an exciting show for you today. Um, this is part of the Monday West Marin Matters series. Every Monday at 1 o'clock, you can tune in to hear about a local environmental or economic topic. On Ocean Currents, we dive into the big blue ocean and talk about what covers three-quarters of the Earth and produces the majority of oxygen we breathe and controls the weather patterns we experience every day. On Ocean Currents, we talk with biologists, oceanographers, ocean policy experts, users, adventurers, and tonight, historians, and anyone that can discuss salt water. So I'm really excited for today's topic. I've been learning quite a bit about some of the historical ecology research projects happening in the country, and it's such an interesting topic, so I wanted to share it with you all today. We know the ocean is in trouble, but we have a very short window of observations and hard data to learn from. So the folks that I'm going to be talking with today probe into historical records to piece together the past. How can we tell what the marine environment looked like underwater before the advent of modern science, before scuba diving, submarines, or sonar? The fish kept no records. Can we somehow ask our forefathers if they knew about the variety and wealth of marine life underwater? Well, this is exactly what the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA, and university partners are attempting to do to look at our changing marine environment through the eyes of people from as early as the 17th century. So let's meet our guests. On the phone, I have Hugo Selby, a California Sea Grant fellow who is conducting an historical ecology study for the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, collecting historical material that looks at biological indicators of the marine ecosystem and identifies and is describing long-term environmental changes within the Monterey Bay region prior to industrialized fishing. Hugo is from the UK and has a BS in marine geography from the University of Wales and an MS in marine biodiversity and conservation from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Welcome, Hugo. You're live on the air. Hi. Very nice to be here. We also have Catherine Marzan from the National Marine Sanctuary Program, who's called in from Silver Spring, Maryland. Catherine is the Historical Ecology Program Manager for the Sanctuary Program. She created this program and oversees all the historic ecology projects and is seeking partners to develop new historical ecology projects in the sanctuaries and even internationally elsewhere. Catherine is also currently working on her Ph.D. in addition to all of this. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Great. So nice to have both of you here. Hugo's in Monterey, Catherine in Silver Springs, and I'm here in Point Reyes. We're all connected. Um, So first, I wanted to just ask both of you, this is such an interesting field of study that I just wanted to ask both of you, how did you get into this field of historic ecology? Um, What drew you to this specific aspect of um, either history or ecology? And how about Catherine, we'll start with you. Um, Thank you, Jennifer. I... um I started being involved with a group of researchers from the University of New Hampshire who are involved in um, in a program called the History of Marine Animal Population. There's a, a big scientific effort called the Census of Marine Life to try to understand what was the past, present, and future of the world oceans, um, of the, the life in the oceans, basically. And this group was trying to understand how many fish there used to be uh, in the sea. And the the group in New Hampshire in particular was very interested in the Gulf of Maine uh, region uh, on the Atlantic uh, coast. 
what was very interesting for the centuries is that they were able to show us the extent of our ignorance when it comes to the past, especially um, how little we know about the past life in the ocean. And there was a such a fascinating world that they opened up that we started talking uh, about working together and bring what they were doing uh, into the sanctuary. So we started this little pilot project in the Stellwagen Bank, which is the uh, sanctuary that we have uh, off Cape Cod, um, to try to see if history can actually enlighten us as to how rich, what was the biodiversity, what was the productivity, the, the number of fish, basically, that were in this particular um, piece of the ocean that we are... Um, we are supposed to manage. Um, has it changed? Is it the way it used to be like? Has it changed since the uh, the uh, first uh, pilgrims came to America? So all these questions, we just started asking them, and I, and I was just so interested by the project, by the results that they showed us, that I just, the, the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. Exciting. Thank you. How about you, Hugo? Well, I... First of all, I got exposed to the subject whilst I was working in the UK for a non-profit called Blue Ventures, and they work in Madagascar, and one of their um, avenues of research was to ask village elders about the history of their coral reef, and so uh, to chart how the how the species had changed, how whether the sizes had gone down. Um, so that was my first uh, blooding, if you like, of uh, for historical ecology. Then during my master's course, I met a, a man named Jeremy Jackson, who works at uh, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who um, he's working very closely uh, with worldwide partners with the History of Marine Animal Populations uh, project that Catherine was talking about. So he really um, exposed me to the, the current research that was going on on a global scale. Then I started my, um, my California Sea Grant Fellowship, working with the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And there just seemed to be this huge disconnect of Monterey is such a such a rich historical hit, uh, area, and but no one really knew about it. No one was really looking at the oceans, and so we thought that it would be a good opportunity to uh, use my fellowship to to begin a project to find out about this these sorts of um, uh, studies. Wonderful. We'll go into a little bit more about the Monterey specific one a little bit later. But um, Catherine, why don't you give us an overview? You kind of alluded to it in the beginning in your introduction there, but. What exactly does the, the field of historic ecology encompass? And you were alluding to um, piecing the, put together the past for the future, but what types of documents do you look at and um, pieces of information that you want to get to help look at historic ec- ecological conditions? Um, sure. Historical ecology is, is, um, is basically emerging of different academic fields and different academic skills. What it does, it, it uses history to inform uh, scientists about what the oceans used to be like. So usually when you have a scientific uh, research, you, use, you have an experiment that will tell you uh, certain parameters about the ocean, and, and you will use scientific data to analyze it. Uh, to answer a particular question. What historical ecology is, it's a little bit of history and a little bit of science, or a lot of history and a lot of science. What it does is you have historians and archivists that are going to archives and libraries to look for uh, documents that will describe what the environment used to be like. These documents can be 
uh, fishing logs or ship logs, um, explored explorers' narratives from uh, early explorers that came to uh, Monterey Bay or along the coast of California, they drew maps, they described what they were seeing, they described the environment they were looking at. And all these documents have basically been at archives and and have been of interest mostly to the historical community. And now we are, uh, we as scientists, we're rediscovering them because these first descriptions tell us what the environment used to be like. And they are interesting in terms of the biology and the ecology of uh, these locations, these areas, whether they are coastal or or oceanographic. One of the difficulties with the oceans is that um, you don't see them unless you go underneath it or unless you try to put a net and extract something uh, from the ocean. So what historical ecology basically does is it uses historical documents as proxies for scientific documents. And once the historians are able to tell the scientists what these documents are saying, the scientists are able to analyze them and apply modern uh, scientific tools, for instance, uh, population dynamics and statistics and information or or the science of community ecology to derive certain descriptions, for instance, the the biodiversity of the area at a particular date, or the biomass, basically the the number of fish that there used to be in the ocean. So it's it's an interdisciplinary area. And in the marine side of things, it's been only very recently that we discovered that, yes, there was indeed a wealth of information in archives that deserves to be looked at. And we are just starting to even look at the tip of the iceberg. So it seems that you have to be starting with some question. It's such a broad amount of information that you probably could be looking for, but it seems like you're probably trying to complement current information and current questions before you dive in to, to find a specific answer to a, a piece of time that you're looking for. Is that about right? Well, it's. I, I would frame it a little bit differently. One of the difficulties is that the, the scientific question you can ask will be limited by the kind of historical documents that are available in the archives. So, for instance, we would love to know the biodiversity. The biodiversity is basically the, a, a measure of the richness of species in an area. Well, in order to get at that, we need to find documents that will tell us about these species and that will be as extensive as possible. And if we miss some of the, these documents, we may not get at a, an accurate idea of what this uh, this biodiversity used to be like. So the, the the difficulty compared to a scientific approach, scientific approach is you ask a question, then you get your data. In historical ecology, the first step is to try to have as, uh, is to search the documents and all the archives and have a lay of the land of what all of the documents are available so that then you can narrow the kind of questionings that you're able to do. Hmm. I mean, the basic... The basic idea is, uh, at least for us in the sanctuaries, is we want to know what the sanctuaries used to be like. Now, in terms of what do we mean by they used to be like? Is it is it the number of species? Is it the number of a particular uh, the, the abundance of a particular species? Is it um, you know is it is it more focused along the coast or 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 the relationship between different species working together? Is it the food web? Uh, so. All, this, all these kind of questions will depend on the kind of data that are found. Great. That's a great answer. 
How about um, you, you're seeing, overseeing a few specific projects that the National Marine Sanctuary Program is a part of. Can you give us a little overview of what are these main projects and where are they occurring and what are some of the questions you're trying to get to? Sure. Well, we, as, as I mentioned before, we, we really started in the sanctuary to get involved with historical ecology when we worked with the University of New Hampshire to tell us about the history of Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Stellwagen Bank is basically... Uh, a sanctuary that's located at the entrance of Massachusetts Bay, uh, above Cape Cod. So sh- uh, the, the ships that try to go to Boston Harbor uh, from from Europe will go through um, Stellwagen Bank. The, it's a historical. Historically, it was a, a fishing ground mostly for uh, cod, but it's also a sanctuary where uh, we have a lot of whales that migrated. So whale watching happens happens there too. Um, so the, the the project in Stellwagen Bank is is focused on anal- analyzing this rich um, history of fishing in the sanctuary. So using uh, logbooks from fishermen, using uh, old scientific records of the Fish Commission. The Fish Commission was basically the predecessor to NOAA's uh, National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, and so the, the, the kind of questioning in Stellwagen Bank is, is heavily centered towards um, commercial fisheries, commercial fishing that was taking place in this area. And what can we learn about the abundance of these fish that are still being fished at Stellwagen Bank, um, Bank today? And, and what, it, what we are looking at is the extent to which, uh, unfortunately, the, the the abundance of fish has has changed, and it's a problem that can be that, that that's been happening in various places. Um, but what we're doing is using this historical records to have a more accurate sense about sense about what these good old days used to be like, as opposed to each individual having an idea that there used to be a lot of fish. What we're looking at is well, what is really what are really the historical records telling us? So, so that's what the Stellwagen Bank project um, is focusing on at this stage. Can I ask one question about that related to sure. that? Within the uh, research about the historical fishing, um, is there documentation of historical regulations? Like what type of foresight was around at the time as far as preserving the abundance of fish? Or was there any foresight in regards to regulating fisheries? Or, well, is that type of information you're finding as well? Well, yes. And as a matter of fact, this is, for, for, for me as a, as a fisheries scientist, that's been the most surprising of the, of the discoveries from this research, is that I, I, um, in my own ignorance, I used to think that uh, the issues of, uh, of, um, of, of managing fisheries was quite recent. But it turns out that uh, among the records that were found uh, by the historians were um, town records. From, from One of them, for instance, is from the township of Plymouth. And the council was discussing in, in the 60s, I believe it's 1700s or 1600s. I, I would have to check my notes for, for the particular date. But it was basically discussing the fact that they should close mackerel fishing for part of the year because it was um, they were afraid that they were not going to be enough for their own needs. They were relying on the mackerel for their own consumption. So they didn't want to overfish. So what they were saying is, we're going to close mackerel fishing that's intended for exports. So mackerel fishing that was the mackerel that was going to be salted. And they were only going to catch fresh mackerel the rest of the year. 
And so here we have the, the township of Plymouth discussing a fisheries management scheme, which I had no idea was happening uh, as early as um, as the early uh, uh, colonists in um, in New England. Somewhat managing the commons, since it was a rather smaller population at the time. Yes, and 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 their survive. It was the the survival of the community. They they relied on it, so they didn't have the choice. They had to fish sustainably. So, I mean, I thought that the notion or the the concept of sustainability was quite recent, but it turns out that. No, we just forgot. We, we, we are rediscovering it in a way. We went astray somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so that's the University of New Hampshire project. Um, how about Hugo? You're working on something in Monterey Bay. Can you talk about that project a little bit? Sure. So I've been uh, trying to, as uh, Catherine was saying, collect the data initially for the Monterey records. And most of the data I've been collecting are uh, first-person narratives, which uh, they're essentially someone who's... Um, visited the area, and then described what they've seen. So these, uh, these narratives are pretty much, they go back until, well, uh, the beginning of European exploration in, in the uh, Pacific coast. So 1602, Sebastian Vizcaino came up the coast and first saw Monterey, and then uh, in the late 18th century, uh, more, more explorers came. Jean-Francois de la Perouse, for example. Um, so I'm, I'm going through uh, the archives and the records and, and piecing out there their descriptions, and then finding out what, what these, uh, what how they're talking about uh, Monterey, and seeing what's changed from um, from those kinds of accounts, and it's it's I mean it's fascinating to see what's happening. They they all talk about uh, a huge amount of uh, whales, for example, which which seem to feed an entire ecosystem. Mm. Whale carcasses uh, washed up on the beach were a food source for condors, for the now extinct grizzly bears, uh, all sorts. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's the 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 productivity of the system compared to what it is now is 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 quite astounding. That's interesting. Um, how about um, in regards to photos? Is this another part of your research? Is for both of you is um, looking at photographs? How do you use photographs in your research? You go. Why don't you start with that? Well, uh, I've been I've been collecting photographs as well, just to. You can learn a lot from a photo. The, the old adage, a picture says a thousand words, is, is very true. And you can see, if, for instance, a photograph is of the dock, you can see a lot of fishing boats in, in, the, um, in the bay, and you can, you can tell what, what kind of, by the gear that they're using, what kind of species they're trying to fish for. And so you can, you can make judgments, educated guesses, about what, what the fishing effort for, is for these types of species. Um, you can also find out about um, different, uh, different, different methods to catch things, to uh, find out about uh, what else. Well, I mean, uh, different settlements that were there. You can use not just photos, but you can actually go back and look at uh, oil paintings mm. from, from a bit before, because you know photos only last um, or only begin around or eighteen ninety, and so before that, we're still looking at pictures to. Uh, there's a famous one in, I think it's in Europe, of there's, uh, there's an old fishmongers with a lot of different species that, that were not available to be um, caught today, but were, were available back in the 1820s. Interesting. For those just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with 
uh, Catherine Marzan and Hugo Selbe, two folks that are working on some historical ecology projects within the National Marine Sanctuaries. And we're talking about how we're looking at historic documents, um, analog, um, logs, photos, to try to piece together some of the historic past of our, our marine environments. Um, Catherine, you were also talking about there were some other projects going on. We just heard about Monterey, University of New Hampshire. What are some other projects going on and some of the questions that you're looking at? Well, um, I was I was going to mention an example when you were talking about pictures. Uh, one of the exciting projects we have is in the Florida Keys with um, a, a young woman, uh, Lauren McClanahan, working on her Ph.D., and she's studying the historical ecology of that uh, particular coral reef, and and it's a it's a completely different uh, environment. It's a coral reef. Uh, it was Spanish, then English before it became American. Uh, so she had to go to the archives in Seville, in Spain, and in the UK to try to f- mine uh, the documents that pertain to the Florida Keys. Um, the resources are very specific. You have the turtle industry, the sponge uh, industry, uh, shark um, resources. Uh, you have endangered uh, species or even species that have become extinct. For instance, the uh, Caribbean monk seals uh, in Florida Keys, you can't find it anymore. And um, and it's a very colorful history. Um, some of the resources she looked at were, uh, were uh, journals from pirates, for instance. But all of these documents told her something about what the environment used to be like. And she's in the process of analyzing the data. But she showed me some pictures that she found in uh, the local uh, library that depicts uh, sports fishermen from the 1950s uh, onward, and even earlier than 1950s and 1930s. Uh, The sports fishing industry in the Florida Keys started at the beginning of the 20th century. And... And as, as to, I, I don't know exactly when the camera started accompanying the sports fishermen, but she found over 600 pictures of uh, basically people and their trophies um, of, um, that, they, that they caught while they were in the Florida Keys waters. And what she started putting it is just putting them over time, all these pictures, one year after the other. And what you see by, by the by analyzing all these pictures, is the species that are being caught are different. The sizes, the overall sizes of the fish that are being caught are different from what they are today. And it's a very dramatic difference. If, if you just look at one picture and the following year, you would not see a difference. But if you look at 50 or 60 years worth of sports fishing pictures, you will see that the fishermen nowadays may may not know what the environment, what the Florida Keys um, resources used to be like and what their maybe parents or grandparents used to catch in the Florida Keys. That's amazing. So you could have uh, family sharing photographs and just seeing species they've never seen before. I mean, I've seen pictures of humongous rockfish that it's just like hard to believe that fish that were that big that were here and we just don't see them that way anymore. Yes, and, and then the question, scientific question becomes, what happened? Are the fish here nowadays, or are they gone? Have they been overfished, or, or if they're if they're gone, uh, why is that? Is it an environmental change, or is it caused by overfishing, for instance, or 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 other other uh, possible uh, causes? So 
the 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 issue is both describing the changes of the environment and then once we describe the fact that there's been a change trying to understand why it happened mhm do you find i mean one thing i could see is that it seems that there's a lot of skepticism about current fisheries data in regards to making management decisions about fisheries how do you feel the um the mixed historical data that you're looking at is taken by the scientific community, the fishing community, for helping to make better management decisions for the future. It seems like there's a, a there's always been a bit of skepticism about data, and I'm just curious how the historic data that you're finding from all these different sources plays into that. Well, I... I... I think the, the, the question is going to be coming later on once the results of our studies are going to be published and then used for management decisions, then we will see how they are being perceived. Mm -hmm. um, because right now the management decisions on fisheries or, or resources are using current data. They're not using historical data per se. I mean, the, I, I believe in the fisheries service uh, are not using um, or, or the, the, the data they're using is that the, the oldest would be 1960s or 70s. And, and I'm, I'm sorry if I show my ignorance to the, uh, to the listeners, uh, but I don't believe they go as far back as the beginning of 1900s um, or, or even, even later. This is not the kind of, of data that they use for their management decisions. Mm -hmm. um, but what is interesting for, for us in the sanctuaries is that um, – when we look at these records and we look at the change they describe uh, or the relative change from what things are today, um, it's, not a, it's not from the management perspective, but it's from the historical perspective of a, um, of a, of a, of a fisherman from the 1900s or, or 1850s saying, this is what I did today. This is how much fish I caught. This is how big the the, the, the the fish, the individual fish, was uh, on, on average size, and this can be compared to what a fisherman will find in the same location on an average day today. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the fish tend to be smaller nowadays, and they tend to be less abundant. Now, the the key question becomes, why is that? And that becomes the management decision. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that's taken in. Yeah. Well, we're going to just take a quick short break. It's already 1.30, so I'll take a quick short break and come right back to this discussion about some of the historical ecology projects. Please stay on the line with us, and we'll be right back with you. Those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. This is 90.5 FM in Point Ray Station and 89.7 in Bolinas. Also, you can tune in live on the web at kwmr.org. You're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. On the phone, I have Hugo Selby at the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and Catherine Marzan from the National Marine Sanctuary Program. Thanks for staying with us. Um, Hugo, I just wanted to ask you, what is a typical search like for you as far as beginning um, a research project? When I met you a few months ago, you mentioned how you'll start on one topic and then you'll find information that takes you another direction and another direction. So where do you, where do you start as far as finding some research, find, finding yeah. the uh, records? That, that, was, that was very much one of the uh, major challenges that I, started, that, I, that I faced when I started. It was just in, it was such a broad topic, just 
even even moving forward slightly, it's very easy to get overwhelmed under a barrage of information. So uh, what I did was I, I started to ask around on how other people had did it, had done it, and uh, essentially tried to come use what they were doing and incorporate it into my own research. So what I, what I did was I came up with a few simple keywords, so Monterey, natural history, uh, you know, otters, whales, whatever. Um, I would then I typed these out into online catalogs like uh, the Online Archive of California, the uh, Melville, which is the catalog for the University of uh, California system. Uh, Google is also fantastically useful, um, and see what kinds of uh, what kind of res uh, results came up. And then with those results, I started going to libraries and uh, reading reading these accounts and seeing what was there that I thought looked interesting and relevant. And then I would uh, photograph uh, the pages in the book and then uh, bring them home or bring them back to the office and and uh, take out certain sections of text and, and start uh, archiving those. And I constructed a database to put them all into so they're all easily searchable and findable. Um, and later on, as, as the analysis component of the project kicks in, they'll be much more easily um, handled as well. What's been one of the most surprising things that both of you have discovered in some of your searches as far as interesting documentation or interesting stories that were just surprising to you? Um, well, I mean, some of the, what really surprises me, first of all, is the, the changing behaviors, both of humans and of, uh, and of animals. For example, everyone thinks now of, of whales as wonderful, cuddly creatures. Uh, but in 1914, I've got a little quote from the Monterey Daily Cypress that says, uh, it is estimated that these monsters of the deep destroy many millions of the little fish, they're referring to sardines, <laughs> each year, and it's, and it's a wonder the government does not do something to have them killed. So it's uh, the fishermen weren't always uh, big fans of whales. That's interesting. You know, you also shared with me this article that I'm going to read real quickly because that also tells another interesting factoid about um, how fish may chase whales. Mm. Um, this is the whale lands high and drive, high and dry on drive from the Monterey American in 1913. It is not only the hake that got themselves into trouble by chasing their prey too closely to the shore and thus landing themselves high and dry. Even that monster of the deep, the whale, sometimes gets himself into such trouble. This is the case with a big 40-foot whale that got himself on terra firma out at Bird Rock on the 17-mile drive. Unlike the hake, the whale does not die when it gets out of the water, being a mammal and breathing air like warm-blooded animals. For this reason, it is to be hoped that the huge beast will be able to uh, amid, I can't read this. Amid its way back, uh, make its way back to the ocean when the tide rises again. For otherwise, it would practically have to die of starvation. It would be a great misfortune for the people who frequent the drive if it should die there. For the huge carcass and decaying would make an awful smelly mess. Whales have been on the beach at other points along Monterey Bay for several days at a time until the flood tide has taken them out again. It is not always in pursuit of prey but rather in seeking to avoid the awful attacks that, at times, are, whales are subjected to from the combined attacks of the swordfish and the thrasher. So that was kind of an interesting article. We know whales wash up occasionally, usually from um, either a ship strike or they've died or they're malnourished, but here they're saying 
Uh, the whales may come ashore to avoid swordfish and thrashers. And how likely is that? Well, it's it's kind of a funny story. Um, I read that article and I, I was like, yeah, I was like, wait, well, hey, hang on. I've never heard of swordfish or uh, thrashers. Thrashers, I, I assume to mean a thrasher shark or a thresher shark, uh, which is a pelagic shark, an open ocean shark, which has an extremely long tail, which it uses to stun small fish. And uh, I, I read a couple of accounts from uh, one from the New York Times about how the swordfish and thresher sharks would combine their attacks upon whales to to basically destroy them. And so that what they they said that the swordfish would force the whale up from below, and then uh, stab it in the belly, and the uh, the thresher shark would jump up in the air and then slap the back of the whale with its tail, <laughs> and and so I was reading these and just thinking, you know, I I don't know what this is. I I haven't heard anything like this, and then I um I read a few more accounts and it seems to be that uh it's a bit of a it's a bit of a miscommunicate between historical facts and. And what we understand now, we're reading it very literally to mean swordfish and thrasher whale, mm -hmm. or thrashers, when in fact uh, thrashers can also mean thrasher whale. Oh. Now, thrasher whales are another name for killer whales, whereas they're so called because as they uh, as they try and uh, as they attack whales, I don't know how many of you who've seen the Blue Planet, but there's a scene in there where they attack a killer whales attack a grey whale calf, mm -hmm. and the way they kill it is they jump on top of it and try and drown it by submerging it so it can't breathe. And so by climbing up, they thrash about and get on top of this animal. So the, the general consensus is that's where the name thrasher has come from. That is so interesting. And then swordfish is also thought to mean a reference to a killer whale because often uh, there's, it's not just here. There are, there are accounts of swordfish, swordfish and, and thrashers killing whales from all up and down the Pacific coast, even down into Chile. And uh, and they thought to mean that the the killer whale's distinctive uh, dorsal fin, which uh, people see is supposed to be um, representative of a sword, and so th this makes much more sense that killer whales attack and and kill uh, whales as opposed to swordfish, which are known to eat small pelagic fish, and, and uh, sharks, which are known to eat the small fish. So I can see how it can be easy to. Um be stalled in trying to figure out some of the meanings of things when yeah. they're perhaps linguistically we called things different things at different times and so then you have to go figure that out. Mm. It's all quite fun. <laughs> That's cool. So what are some other misconceptions that you may have discovered through some of your research about um, animals and, and the food web or or uh, biodiversity? Um, there is, I'm not sure if it's a real uh, kind of scientific misconception, but one thing that's been interesting me recently is uh, the the change of beha uh, the behavior of animals over time. Mm -hmm. So uh, otters, for example, nowadays we think of them as exclusively in in the ocean and in the kelp forest, and and that's where they live and that's only where they live. They never come out of the water. They never go anywhere but the kelp forest, and that's exclusive where the, exclusively where they are. But it, some of the uh, accounts that you can read and they talk about uh, the Native Americans. Uh, catching otters on land with snares. Uh, one of the early Spanish explorations in uh, 1738, I believe it was, uh, they talk about being able to catch... The otters are so abundant that they're on the shore, and they can actually run up to them and club them with sticks. Nowadays, and then as uh, the fur trade started to, to, to kick off, then uh, the otters became more and more wary. 
and otters learn a lot from their mothers. And so as their mothers were uh, were staying in the kelp forest, the uh, the youngsters would stay in the kelp forest. And this has just uh, persisted over time until recently where uh, with the reduction or with the abolition of um, of hunting pressure and, and the otter numbers becoming sufficiently large again, they've actually started to to revert to natural behavior and to uh, haul out on land. So I, th- I thought that was... Um, very interesting. What is interesting? What about as far as their range, otters range, what type of documentation have you seen about that? Now we have these very specific areas where otters are, but historically we know they were mm. in different areas. Are, well, have you just been focusing on the Monterey region? or? No, no, I've actually, I've found uh, some papers that refer to uh, midden reports. Middens are, they're, they're like uh, trash heaps. So you, it, Native Americans would use an animal and then uh, they throw it into into their trash heap. Now we can find these and we can find out uh, a huge amount of information from them, like the kind of species they're eating. You can uh, you can tell from a fish vertebrae what t- what species of fish it is, and then um, make a make a rough es- estimate of how big it is. So you can learn a huge amount just from these tiny little bone fragments. So what we've seen with otters is that they actually existed all the way down up from uh, Alaska down into Baja. And so they, they were they were regular regular occurrences on the coast, nothing new at all when you would see one. But now with this intensive period from about 1790 to 1850 of fur trade, uh, most of the furs went to the, uh, the Chinese, uh, the Mandarin courts, which the furs were very fashionable at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is really extreme exploitation and the fact that otters, uh, they they don't give birth to many uh, young. They uh, take a long time to grow. They take, they invest in a few small young, as opposed to uh, a lot of a lot of just kind of making lots of eggs and letting their like schools of fish, letting them go and swim out and take their chances. And so they're very susceptible to overexploitation. Mm-hmm. And so now we we've, we've reached this uh, this time when in, in California orders were thought to be extinct until 1938 when there was a small bound a small amount found uh, just south of uh where is it carmel mm-hmm. and uh i think the california populations there's pretty much the only one there is until we start heading up into canada I right up on olympic coast i think there's a couple as well in that region so switching to more of a broader topic catherine i wanted to ask you how you see the use of historical ecology as in regards to studying climate issues. Climate is on everybody's minds and looking at the current science that we have now, but how can historical records tell us about historic climate issues or um, different levels and, and concerns? Well, that's one of the aspects that, that surprised me about the, the study uh, that I, I didn't expect w- would happen. We've been uh, working with um, scientists and historians who've been um, mining archives, finding all kinds of uh, documents. And it turns out that some of these documents are also uh, can have dual purposes. I mean, we are extracting out of these documents information on living resources, um, how many fish there used to be in the sea, what is the biodiversity. Um, but these documents can also uh, contain... Uh, climate information. What was the weather the day the fisherman was catching this particular fish? Um, what was the temperature 
when in the um, 1880s, when the U.S. Fish Commission started commissioning uh, U.S. Um, fisheries research vessels, and they navigated all along the American coast, and they were gathering data on uh, stopping at particular stations and taking um, uh, oceanographic information, uh, bathymetry, what was the depth of the ocean, what was the air temperature, the barometer, what was it telling us, what were the winds, and that what was coming out of the of their dredges. So, so suddenly we're starting to come across documents that are both uh, that have value in terms of climate as well as ecological data. And we can now foresee the analysis of these documents to tell us more about um, how what, what was the climate in addition to what was the ecology of a particular location and try to study them together so we can see if things have changed. Was it because the climate changed or was it because of another reason? Hugo, have you seen that in the Monterey records in regards to um, oceanographic shifts in the Pacific Ocean in regards to fisheries? Uh, I haven't. I haven't really gone that far into that mm-hmm. subject, so I'm not sure if I could, I could uh, answer that with any degree of accuracy. Yeah, I know. Understand, uh, John. During John Steinbeck days, the the booming sardine fishery then took a complete dive and really changed the economy of the region and. There's different thoughts on why that happened and whatnot. It'd be interesting to follow up on. Mm. Catherine, you just were at a conference in Switzerland talking about historic ecology. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where that might go? Uh, sure. I was uh, invited to talk to a conference, uh, actually a climate conference. So I was the only person who talked about uh, fish. I was surrounded by climate scientists who are interested, uh, well, not only interested, but whose job it is to put together the data sets that are used to um, study climate change. Um, A a lot of these data sets are basically like what we've been talking about, um, mining historical documents to try to see uh, what historical records contain in terms of climate information. That's atmospheric conditions and oceanographic conditions, so physical variables. Uh, We, on the other hand, have been doing similar work but looking at uh, biological and ecological conditions. So I was taught, I was uh, presenting this um, this surprising uh, interface between ecology and climate research. Um, in 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 a way, um, we have so much in common in terms of the language we speak about. The, the, we are reconstruct reconstructing time series. We are reanalyzing historical data. Uh, we share uh, similar approaches in in how to study. Uh, these documents. The difference is the once these documents are mined is the science that is being used to analyze these data. Um, but what was interesting is that, uh, for instance, there's a group in the UK that that is studying these old um, books, these these uh, ship ship logs from the uh, East India Company. This was the um, so, so suddenly they, they were covering the entire oceans. Uh, they were also studying the ship logs from some of the um, old um, British Navy ships that used to come in, uh, along the American coast. So they're looking at the, these data for the wind, the weather information, but they also contain observations. Uh, the 
the, the captains were observing what was going on. They were, they were saying if they saw something unusual, if they saw a school of fish, they would have, they would have taken note of it. So, those, so suddenly we have a lot in common. We want wow. to be able to uh, capture this information uh, as well. And, um, and as you know, we have sanctuaries uh, in various parts of the American Ocean and American coasts. So it would be really wonderful to be able to work with them and, and telling us, well, what was the climate? What were they observing in terms of the physical condition of the environment? But if they were saying any, seeing anything in terms of biology, um, you know, can we work together to, um, to extract also that information? Is there a place where um, ship logs, like all, I mean, obviously there's a lot of ships around and, and they all keep logs. Is there a place where a log is to be sent to when the, a ship is decommissioned? It seems like that is such a vital piece of information. What happens to all these logs when a ship is no longer in service? Well, that's that's a good question. And, I, and, and it, the answer will depend on the, the kind of ship we're talking about. Uh, the National Archive, for instance, has... Um, has a lot of ship logs. Uh, they're the ones with the Smithsonian uh, Institution that ha- have archived the ship logs or the, the log books of the Fish Commission research vessels, which is for us some, uh, an incredible resource since these, these, these scientific logs have so much to offer in terms of climate and historical ecology research. Um, some of the other ship logs may be in personal collections uh, for for particular uh, commercial uh, institutions. Uh, they may be in local libraries or in in state libraries or, or archives. Um, and that's why this this kind of research is is so um, so geographically specific. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes it takes going to these places and and coming across these documents and fi- and. Um, and knowing knowing the area is very useful in uh, increasing the probability of coming um, coming across these treasure trove of, of information in a way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another question I was thinking about, um, and this is probably for both of you, with both of the research you've been doing, is the historical attitude about um, the fishing as a living, fishing for a living, and historically. What did people think of the fishing industry, and when did it start to shift? Because of once the industrialization and corporate fishing companies took on, have either of you seen any types of documents of what was it like for a fisherman way back, and how they were regarded in the community? I've read a little bit about uh, about the uh, the Italian fishing fishing community around Monterey and Santa Cruz, and uh, it seems that. And also, there's a, there was a, uh, a large uh, Chinese and Japanese community here, mm-hmm. and they, as I understand it, the fishing communities uh, kind of stuck to themselves, and they didn't they didn't um, they didn't mingle so much with the with the rest of the um, the rest of the community. Even but though they, they, but they uh, they always one thing I've uh, they seem to have all taken a little bit from where they were. Uh, originally, so uh, Sicily or, or Italy or China or Japan, and then use these, um, use, brought these uh, techniques or uh, ways of dealing to to Monterey or, or the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for instance, there's there's some early uses of the uh, drift net, not the drift net, the 
Um, Gilnet? No, the one Dredge. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that was brought that was brought across from uh, from Sicily. So that was that started off in um, in 1908, I think, or near uh, early 20th century. And uh, um, so, yeah, I think there 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 is. I've read a few accounts about the fishermen, and they it, it seems like a really hard life. I mean, they didn't have they didn't have the fish finders. They didn't have what we normally associate with uh, with fishing vessels. Now they these guys would go out in their twenty foot sailing uh, vessels. They they'd fish all night. Then the trademark fog would come in. They'd be in the middle of the bay, and they'd have to they describe it as sniffing their way home. Mm-hmm. And you know, they sometimes they'd take along their sons. Who, I read one account of a, uh, a guy talking about his dad who every time he got lost or thought he got lost, he would put his finger in the water, taste it, and then say, right, we're going that way. Oh, and interesting. they'd always find their way home. So the, the, the local knowledge as well that these, these fishermen possess about, about the area is also another great avenue to, to research. Especially before all the technology, like you're mentioning, just knowing the sea and knowing the cycles. That yeah, is really yeah. interesting. Catherine, how about over in New Hampshire or with Stellwagen Bank, uh, perceptions of fishermen in the pre-industrial age till till now? Have you seen much information on that? Uh, well, I, I, I haven't. Although, although I've been working with uh, with historians that are so knowledgeable that they would be able to t- give you the exact correct answer at this stage. Um, but I, I haven't seen so much of a change in perception uh, in New England in terms of how uh, the fishing is being portrayed. The, the fact that there's less fish is, is known, but um, there's still a lot of respect for for and and um, respect for for the for for fishing as a as a profession. Uh, the lore of uh, the fishermen and the element is still very much alive, uh, and and the communities. Uh, in New England, are, are 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 very much still centered around around fishing, uh, whether it's the lobster industry or or cod or or some of the other species. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's that's my perception, at least. Yeah, that's interesting. They need a lot of support, especially the local fishermen, with um, a lot of this industrial and foreign fishing going on. So I was just curious if there was any perceptions that have passed on. We're getting close to the top of the hour, and I wanted to ask both of you, based on what you've seen and, and what you've learned and what you've seen through all the um, history and research that you've done, what recommend, recommendations can you pass on to listeners about their personal role in being a good ocean steward or helping to conserve the ocean environment? Um, I Personally, I'd, I'd say just... To, to realize that the ocean that you're looking at now is not it's not what it was it's not in a good place it's uh it's been heavily changed from even a hundred years ago uh there's a lot less species there's well not that sorry that's that's incorrect there there are different uh level there are different numbers of species the the ecosystem isn't functioning quite as as it naturally uh could have and so uh one way I was thinking, uh, for example, with the fisheries, is to really, really take a take a look at what you're buying in the markets, and to to try and only buy sustainably caught fisheries or fish. Um, don't ever buy shark, for instance. Uh, just just really try and be educated with your uh, consumer power, because we consumers can make a difference, and they can 
they can try and um, change things. Thank you. How about you, Catherine? Well, if I was thinking if people are interested in um, in this subject, there's a, there's a great book that came out last fall called The Unnatural History of the Sea by mm. Callum Roberts. And it's a, it's a wonderful read, and it, it has a more global world perspective of, of uh, the extent to which the oceans have changed. Um, I think the key message, in a way, what, what this study is, is um, these kind of research are telling us is not only the extent of our ignorance in terms of what the oceans used to be like, um, but it's not surprising because we're still discovering what the ocean, the way the oceans are today. But another aspect that is quite compelling is how um, how we have uh, we we do not have a clear picture of what a healthy marine ecosystem is because we haven't seen it in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. It seems that the environment, by the time we started paying attention to conservation to conservation issues of the oceans, the ocean had already changed. So we have to rediscover what a what a healthy environment is, and that will tell us what we want the future to be, uh, especially if we want to manage or conserve or preserve the marine ecosystems, then knowing what they used to be like and knowing what they are today will help us define the future that we that we want and expect. So we really need to pay attention to shifting baselines in regards to our attitudes about what we see and realize that it's just a small piece of the window as far as historic time and and this ecosystem and how it exists. Well, great. Catherine and Hugo, thanks so much for your time today, sharing some of these stories and some of the methods you're using to look at some of this historic ecology. It's really, really interesting to me, and I've always found it fascinating how we use maps and charts and even menus and diaries to learn about um, historic ecosystems. So thank you for sharing this information today. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. So thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. I, I think it was really interesting to hear of some of the um, misperceptions that could be passed on through the media of how we used to name animals differently and how a whole different concept could come about. Um, and and to realize that what we see right now in the ocean is actually quite different than what it used to be. And um, some of these historic records applied with our current science can really help us make better management decisions for the future. So take a look on the web, see what you can find out about historical ecology. The National Marine Sanctuary's website, sanctuaries.noaa.gov, actually have a quite a nice summary of some of the projects going on if you'd like to take a look at that. We'll include a link to that from the Cordell Bank website where this show will be archived another week or so. You can always check, um, get past shows and archives of Ocean Currents on the cordellbank.noaa.gov website. Um, up next will be Rick Clark with Cruise in the 50s. Next month when I'm back, I'll have a very special guest in the studio, uh, the former manager of the Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank Sanctuaries, Ed Huber who has recently retired, will be here sharing some of his stories and his tenure at the helm managing this area and hearing about some of his very interesting um, adventures and, and stories. So we'll look forward to having Ed in the studio then. Until then, get out. Stay cool. It's getting hot. So get out into the water and take care. You're listening to KWMR. KWMR.